You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to an episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, uh, episode 104, I realized shortly after we recorded episode 103 last week that we did an entire episode of the podcast without mentioning the fact that we have co-main event podcast mugs for sale. Because we're fucking professionals. Well, I think that that's maybe that's our thing, right? That's how we drive up demand for them is like, hey, why aren't we mentioning those mugs? Because they sell themselves. That's why. We don't even have to plug it. Yeah. Or it's like a special, uh, almost like a viral marketing campaign. Yeah. Like, oh, it's only for the cool kids that that either follow us on Twitter or uh, visit the website themselves. It's so viral, no one knows about it. (laughs) And that is the best kind of marketing. Yeah. To make sure that no one knows about your product. That's right. It's like the, uh, you know, antibiotic resistant superbug version of viral marketing. Uh, on an unrelated note, we have mugs for sale uh, at the website. You can go there, comainevent.com, and click the uh, the banner ad that we have and, and go over to Pyramid America, our partners that, we, that are uh, putting out mugs for us. I believe they got it figured out now, so they ship uh, in North America. I don't know about Europe. Uh, but we're still trying to get that figured out. So if yeah. you are a European fan of the Co-Main Event podcast and also a fan of tasty beverages, uh, we're trying to get your needs taken care of. It's not easy, Believe though. Believe it. No, man. It's People think it's easy to have coffee mugs and sell them on the internet. And then it turns out you can't ship them to Sweden. Well, in fairness, let's say it probably would be easy if we knew what the hell we were doing. Yeah, no, if it would be easy for other people. But for us, it's actually quite challenging. If anyone involved knew what they were doing, it would be easy. Ben, uh, I assume all of the listeners of the podcast right now are feverishly scribbling down the last few lines of their essays to send those in to us because mm-hmm. the uh, the deadline to get your submissions in for the second annual White Elephant Essay Contest is tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, at midnight. So... Motherfuckers you know, just got to wait to the last minute, don't they? The transition between Tuesday and Wednesday. I assume that people are waiting for uh, some of their proofreading to come in. Like they sent it out to a few readers. They're going to get notes back, make some final changes. They probably update the bibliography, uh, make sure that they start the essay with a definition from the dictionary. Right, yeah. Webster's Dictionary or defines... Ma- one of my favorites from back when you and I used to teach freshman composition as grad students was... Uh, an essay that begins nowadays uh, and then launches into just a bunch of completely wrong generalizations. It's funny that you bring that up because I actually had some flashbacks to our old teaching days a couple of weeks ago when people were getting on the uh, the website, comainevent.com, and leaving comments in the uh, White Elephant essay post about why they would have to cite sources in a narrative essay based on their personal experience, which brought me right back to that experience of teaching introductory introductory composition at the University of Montana, uh, where everyone wanted to know why the requirements of the assignment were the requirements of the assignment. Don't even worry about it. I get, just, just do your shit, hand it in, and let's all move on. I tried to explain it to him. Uh, one thank you this week. Are we allowed to thank the Fortnite on the show? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure we are. Uh, as long as we don't thank Ariel Helwani by name. No, nothing to do with him. Okay. Uh, New York Rick from the MMA Fortnite, who also, I believe, made his debut on the MMA Beat this week, uh, sent us a nice box of Roots of Fight gear uh, that... that uh, some of it might wind up in the hands of the uh, White Elephant Essay Contest peoples. Yeah, because we can only wear so many t-shirts. That's right, yeah. Although, I gotta say, uh, one of the things in this box was a Joe Frazier hoodie. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. That which is, is yeah. totally awesome, which I will totally wear. And, uh, you know, you just don't see a whole lot of Joe Frazier gear out there these No, days. not a lot of Joe Frazier merch flying around. Uh, he sent me the... Uh, uh, Galveston giant Jack Johnson world heavyweight champion hoodie because and here's the lesson that I learned from this. I learned complain more on Twitter because he sent it to me. The reason because I was uh, talking about how I was jealous of John Anik when he showed up at a UFC we- uh, weigh in wearing the Jack Johnson hoodie. And uh, next thing I know coming in the mail, Jack Johnson hoodie straight from roots of fight in New York, Rick Galveston giant. Uh, Only way it could be cooler is if it said big smoke. On the back. The uh, uh, the other thing I learned is that a lot of my Twitter followers assume that I would be into Jack Johnson, the singer-songwriter. Oh. Which. Well, that's an indictment of you. Makes me feel like they don't know me at all. Or maybe that uh, they know you better than you know yourself. Speaking of singer-songwriters, uh, this week's music, Ben, comes to us from listener Ben Law and his band Junebug. They are a self-described lo-fi indie band slash duo from Sydney, Australia. Okay. And if you like their stuff, you can find more of it at soundcloud.com slash do the Junebug slash sets. S-E-T-S. Sets. I assume that we won't even be able to understand the lyrics through their thick, thick Australian accents. And we will put a link to that up on the uh, comainevent.com like we always do once the episode gets published. Three rounds as usual this week for the Comain Event podcast in round number one. So... Will Brooks upsets Michael Chandler for the interim lightweight title, but Bjorn Rebney now says that Eddie Alvarez's contact contract guarantees him the right to demand a third fight with Chandler, Chandler regardless. Oh, what the fuck did I just pay $45 to watch last weekend? Did that mean nothing? That was really painful to sit through that. And round number two, Rampage Jackson beats Mola Wall to win the Bellator light heavyweight tournament. Alexander Schlaminko goes out to Tito Ortiz like it's his first day at the gym. King Mo calls Bjorn a dick rider. And Emmanuel Newton barely gets mentioned on the pay-per-view at all. It's so funny to hear you say dick rider. Your move, UFC. And in round number three, it ain't no wacky Cirque du Soleil style fight. It's just two cowboys ready to saddle up and ride. But will Dan Henderson have anything at all for Daniel Cormier? Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock still on assignment. Over That's right. on the East Coast. We wish him the best. Uh, so no Master Tweet Theater this week, but uh, he's going to come back when? Two weeks? Next week? I think it depends on what his parole officer says. Are we allowed to let people behind the curtain enough to, to mention that Sir Nigel's crashing at your house right now? Yeah. Well, I guess we can we can go ahead and say that. It's, I don't want to break kayfabe too much, but uh, yeah, no, well, he's down there in the basement bedroom Sir, right now. Sir Nigel... Uh, he uh, he broke up with his girlfriend, uh, which then, of course, necessitated him moving out of the house uh, and straight into my basement. So that's what that's, that's what's going on. So awesome! Uh, all that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And just saying stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes from Fion Healy Magua. Do you think I got close? Actually, I feel like that was right on. Do you think that's a male or a female? 
Oh, I was. I assumed it was a Chewbacca. Okay. What is Chewbacca? A Wookie. <laughs> I thought it was a Wookie. Uh, They're genderless, right? Speaking of people who say stuff weird, Wookie. 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 Uh, in Dana's vlog this week, the first three and a half minutes was taken up by him quoting statistics on why Henan Barrow is the top pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world. I personally had to stop watching when he pulled out a sheet of paper and began shouting his way through the obscure facts and figures, not taking anything away from the Baron slash monster and his sexy dancing, but I still can't fathom why Dana is trying so hard to shove him specifically down our throats as the UFC's best pound-for-pound pound fighter. Maybe I'm missing something, but there seems to be a lot of other fighters that would be much more marketable and easier to make into top draws. Thoughts? Question mark, question mark. Uh, I would begin our answer to this question by saying, I don't feel like it's an accident that Dana White's belief that Hennon Barrow is the number one pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world seems to come up the week before a pay-per-view where he's going to fight six to one underdog TJ Dillashaw in, uh, on a show that, uh, they probably don't think is going to move too many units over there on the pay-per-view. That might not be a coincidence. So right. probably you know, not just chance. I also noticed this. I, I was working on something today, uh, about this, that exact moment because especially because I was watching the, the that moment was from the, uh, video blog from the last fight night, right? Where he shows like the clips from, the behind-the-scenes clips from Matt Brown and Eric Silva. But at the beginning, he starts out by, you know, giving the kind of hard sell for the next pay-per-view. You're and he asking does. me this like I watch the Dana White video blog. He, he goes off about Hen and Brow. And then I saw it again in another video they put out, this embedded video they put out uh, promoting UFC 173, where they're, like, hanging around in the offices with Dana White. And you can see in the embedded uh, camera, they're recording him talking into another camera. About like it's two different like video marketing campaigns by the UFC. That's pretty meta. Right it is. There. It is pretty meta. But also the thing too, when I started listening to because like uh, like this Chewbacca who wrote in uh, saying how it's kind of weird when he he takes out a piece of paper and starts reading off like significant strikes per minute stats and you're like okay man come on and he's like saying it in his really excited voice too like you know it's so exciting that he could not remember it and had to have it on a piece of paper uh, but also some of the stuff he says is just not true about Hen and Brow. Like yeah easily verifiably not true right? right he says he hasn't lost a fight in 35 fights not true uh, his share dog record is 32 and one with one no contest. So 34 total fights. Yes. Right? Uh, and, you know, he, he lost the first one. Uh, the UFC is the only one that to credit him with more fights. They credit him as like 34 and one, uh, with, so there's 35 total fights. So not even the UFC's own statistics back that up. It doesn't seem like, he also says that, uh, he, his finishing rate in, uh, title fights as 100%, but he won the title, the interim title, over Uriah Faber with a decision, so that's not really true. I feel like you referring to the Wookiee race as Chewbacca's is kind of like when people refer to MMA as UFC. I, I can live with that. Let me hear you say Wookiee one more time. Wookiee. It's not a real thing, so it doesn't really matter. It's okay. fictional. But okay, the thing with, with Henry Brown, before we got sidetracked and all that, uh, I get like the UFC is like the thing that they have decided is going to sell Henan Brown, right, is to say best pound-for-pound pound fighter. And he's exactly the kind of fighter that pound-for-pound pound was created for, like a small guy who you want to 
try and find a way to make the point that he's really awesome anyway. Uh, and so you go with this pound for pound thing, because really, if you're thinking about who probably has made the actual physical case for pound for pound greatest fighter in, in the world, it seems like John Jones to me at this point. So, uh, to kind of just ignore that whenever we have a Hen and Burrell fight to sell, yeah, that's not really going to work. I mean, it, it's transparent, I think. Yeah, then it seems like just a really, really easy way to, uh, like, up his quote-unquote trending, you know, get him into a trending topic somewhere the week of a fight he's going to have is to bring up where he's ranked on a completely fictional, uh, meaningless list. Because uh, why not say he's number one? It's not like, I mean, I guess until you take the additional step of going on a video blog and saying a bunch of things that are verifiably not true, like you risk very, very little by saying that Hennon Barrow is the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world because it's not a real list. Nobody knows. So shit, man, why not? Why not yeah. say he's number one? Except for the uh, other guys who are pretty sure they're number one. You're not really going to piss anybody off too much. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm sure that they're just so concerned about all those other guys' feelings. Uh, the second question this week comes to us from Chris Shell. He writes, ERG in all caps. That's U-R-G-H with four exclamation points. ERG. See, who says you can't start your listener mail email off with something that's not a word and still get on the show? It's, I, I, I admire Wait, it. This one. Now, this one sounds like it's from a Wookiee. <laughs> Starting off with Erg. Yeah, Chris Shell. Uh, he writes, Bellator, quit with the fucking interviews right before the fights. Nobody gives a shit. Post-fight interviews are bad enough. Discuss, please, and thank you. Uh, he's right about this, though. When we remarked on this when we were watching the Bellator pay-per-view at your house this weekend, uh, prior to Tito Ortiz going out and choking Alexander Shlomenko unconscious, which I believe we will talk about later in the show, uh, this Bellator show was just terribly slow like like it felt like a slow and painful death and a lot wow. of it had to wow. do with the fact that bellator didn't seem to understand that once you were watching the pay-per-view that you had already bought it you had already bought their product and were then yeah. watching it because a lot of it had to do with uh hype and like and and you know I understand if you're putting on a first time pay per view the 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 uh, inclination might be there to like try to interest the fan base in the stories of your fighters which I think is is probably a good uh, urge but it this just seemed like too much it felt like even when they had really good stories to tell like uh, uh Blagoy come on. Ig Ilyich Lenin. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, the, the, the dude who had been stabbed and come back from the brink of death, which, hey, man, awesome story. Put that on your pay-per-view. It felt like they told it in triplicate. Like yeah. they told it and then told it again and then told it one more time well, just in case you'd been in the bathroom. Well, those things I think are, you know, the video packages and stuff. Uh, those I get because, like you said, you do want to tell a story and you know let people know what the the stakes are, what the narrative are, who these people are. Uh, the pre-fight interviews, though, you know, no one really has much interesting to say right then. It's it is like worse than the post-fight interviews where they're all still pumped up on adrenaline and you want us to talk us through a replay, but they're not even really sure what they're looking at. Still, you know, running a uh, hundred miles an hour out there on their brain. Pre-fight, they're you know in that focused mode, and then you got Frank Shamrock up in there trying to, uh, you know, smile his his orthodontic smile up in their face and and shove a, a microphone under their mouth. They don't have a whole lot to say right then. I mean, and it seems like we learned that with uh, when Showtime used to do it with the Strike Force events, right? Like, it very rarely yields anything good. It just it reminds you how much the fighters don't want to be doing that right then. 
Yeah, and uh, I feel like there's one saving grace of those pre-fight interviews that uh, I'm gonna we're gonna get into later in the show. But you're right; it is sort of like a terribly awkward experience, and uh, the fighters are trying to get ready to have fights, which is one of the things that uh, I feel like is is maybe lost in that conceptualization that that's a good idea to go ask them questions right then. It's almost like uh, when they do, they insist on doing those interviews after the weigh-ins. Where they ask guys right. questions, where the only thing they want to do is go eat and Get like some Pedialyte, chug up in some them. Pedialyte yeah. to try to rehydrate, and that those you know those they always only ask like one question, and the fighters always answer it in one sentence. They're always like, "We will find out tomorrow. The fight will be great," and then that's it. They're done. Yeah. Uh, and Bellator actually uh, tipped its hat a little bit, or tipped its hand, I guess that the. Uh, uh, that the pay-per-view might be poorly paced during the weigh-in, which I know you didn't watch, but I was at home no. doing nothing. And so I clicked it on because it was going to be streaming live on my on my computer and uh, realized that Bellator, and I guess they do this at every weigh-in, I saw people saying on Twitter, but they interviewed every fighter on every televised fight. So every fighter oh, from God. the Spike TV portion of the show all the way through the pay-per-view got asked one question just after they weighed in. Oh, see, now that makes me want to respond with the argh that this question began with. I can't even imagine sitting through that. Also, though, when you're going to do the like pre-fight interview, the thing is you don't have to do it like at the arena. Like You could always do it the day before and tape it and then <laughs> play it back. Like What's really going to change between like Friday afternoon and early Saturday evening before they go out to fight? You don't have to do that. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, but no, I, I felt like – and you know, the, I feel sort of like the further away we get from this Bellator pay-per-view, the more I kind of like it. The more that it it feels to me like it was a success and like I enjoyed it and I would gladly watch a second Bellator pay per view, but like the 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 weirdness, like the the interesting weirdness of this Bellator pay per view down the stretch in the last like three fights, really saved it kind of against all odds because previous to that, because of this pacing, whoo, it had been bad. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a fair point. I'm sure we'll get into that more on the show. Uh, the next question this week comes to us from Taylor Loyal. He writes, can we talk for a minute about the Nate Diaz dilemma? Nate is an absolute killer at 155. I'm sure the weight cut sucks, but his three-fight win streak over Gomi, Cowboy, and Jim Miller was one of the most exciting runs I've seen in a while. But before that, he got ragdolled by Rory and smothered by Stun Gun Kim at 170. Yet now he's campaigning for a welterweight matchup with Matt Brown. Even with a win over Brown, I just can't see him taking the title from Johnny Hendricks. So what's the end game? On the other hand, the only top guys he hasn't already fought at 155 are undefeated and relatively unknown. Uh, a dangerous combination. And even if he wins a couple of fights there, I'm sure he's expecting his homie Gilbert Melendez to do to be the next lightweight champ. And they won't fight each other. So where does that leave him? I guess in no man's land in both weight classes looking for exciting and lucrative fights. And in that way, Diaz Brown makes perfect sense. But it also makes me a little bummed for the guy. What do you think? I feel like he said it all, man. Like he kind of yeah. answered his own question there. Well, I don't know. I haven't really seen Nate Diaz campaigning for this Matt Brown fight. I mean, I know everybody was talking about Matt Brown versus Nick Diaz is the fight we all wanted to see. Uh, I saw I saw an article on the internets that I can now not remember where it was from, but it said that Nate Diaz said that he wanted the the Matt Brown fight, which you know you read that in Modern Jackass. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I think I was over on Modern Jackass checking that out. Maybe well, uh, Huffington Post had it. Uh, <laughs> well, but I mean, I thought that uh, he has a whole contract issue, right, where the UFC is trying to pay him this funny money, 
and uh, he's not going to fight for that. Right, and like to me, it, it, when I the Nate Diaz wanted to fight Matt Brown thing, just it feels a little bit like uh, he's jumping on on the Nick coattails a little bit. One Diaz is as good as another, maybe. Uh, and Which maybe the UFC it, has been known to agree with from time to time. Right, yeah, and, and frankly, I don't necessarily disagree with it in this instance, but like you know, and and because you brought up the the fact that he he's not going to fight for that funny money, like the Matt Brown fight, the UFC just pretty much proclaimed Matt Brown a quote unquote rock star, and you have to think that his next fight is going to be sort of high profile maybe a main event somewhere uh maybe even on fox i don't know and uh maybe nick D- or nate diaz sees this as an opportunity uh to fight a guy who maybe he thinks seems beatable and a guy to maybe get a little bit more of that funny money well is it possible that nate diaz uh master strategist has thought all this through he realizes that he's in kind of a no man's land and so he's going to kill time uh and try to get his his money up and in the meantime, he'll he'll keep us interested by talking about these fights he knows that they're not going to give him. So that way he can avoid fighting the uh, unknown but still tough lightweights that Taylor Loyal mentioned here. Uh, and uh, still keep himself in our minds while not actually having to get in there and fight for that funny money. Yeah. Maybe he's thinking four steps ahead. It's possible he's playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers. Uh, you know, the Diaz brothers aren't dumb. Right, we we and he's the smarter one, I think. <laughs> we know, we know he's that he's the less dumb one. I feel like, uh, you know, Nick Diaz kind of does this thing where he talks so much that it feels like he loses track of his train of thought and can't like uh, verbally express what he's trying to say. But like, if you can get to the underlying themes in most Nick Diaz rants, like he's usually right about like what he's talking about. Wolf tickets, wolf tickets, and whatnot. Uh, people coming over to pamper George St. Pierre shit out every Having hour to fight on these the hitters. hour. Uh, so, so like, you know, it's possible that, that Nate Diaz is in fact working an angle of some kind here. Although, you know, when you think about it, I'm, I can't necessarily think of a, of a matchup in either weight class that seems better to me for Nate Diaz than, uh, than Matt Brown. Yeah. I still, I agree. I'd rather see him at lightweight though. Last question this week comes to us from Steve Indigo. He writes, should I be concerned about declining UFC pay-per-view numbers? As a fan, why should I give a shit if a pay-per-view sells or not? Does a do declining... Okay. Come on now. He says, does declining numbers... I'm going to say, do declining numbers mean the UFC moves away from pay-per-view or realize that their product is becoming watered down? Uh, You know, I just wrote a big thing about UFC pay-per-view numbers about a week ago, and I had the opportunity to look at a spreadsheet with all of the, uh, I guess, estimated buy rates on it uh, from the past five, six years. Uh, And from what I could tell... Uh, at least if we're talking about the period of time after the departure of Brock Lesnar, uh, UFC pay-per-view numbers really aren't down. S- since the, the he's left, I would say that the average UFC pay-per-view appears to my eye to sell about the same number of pay-per-views as, as it always has, uh, b- between about 250 and 350,000 buys. Uh, the thing that this year is going to make it look like the UFC pay-per-view numbers are way down is that it's not going to have George St. Pierre or Anderson Silva to come along uh, and fight once a quarter to give them a bump 
of you know anywhere from three to four hundred thousand extra pay per view buys. Uh, and I think that we learned in the last couple of fights with uh, Ronda Rousey and John Jones, uh, which did not sell very well. Uh, John John Jones did three hundred fifty thousand against Glover Teixeira, and uh, Ronda Rousey did just slightly less than that. I think when she fought Sarah McMahon at UFC one seventy, I think we learned that uh, they're not the kind of draws that people are going to show up to watch whoever. They're not going to watch them fight whoever. Right. You know what I mean? Whereas George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva, especially after the Chael Sonnen uh, feud with Anderson Silva, were two guys that a lot of people would buy their pay-per-view to watch them fight. Just anybody. Yeah. Uh, and the UFC doesn't really have that draw right now, I don't think. But uh, in terms of like actual overall pay-per-view numbers, uh, you know, the average show, I think, is not really declining. Um, but to, to reference Steve Inigo's actual questions, man, I don't know if you should care. Like if you're just a fan, except that in the, in this like really broad and vague sense, it's a way to track like the relative health of the sport that you like. Yeah. Well, okay. There's that. There's also the, the consideration that we all want the fighters to get paid more. Right. And for the guys at the top, the champions stuff, that's how they're, they're getting paid is they're getting a piece of the pay-per-view That's one, one of the ways they're getting paid. So I guess you can make the argument that. We want pay-per-views to do better so that fighters like John Jones and stuff make more. Uh, I, I do think, though, that there's something to that idea of it as a barometer of the sport's health. And I think that's the thing that uh, when we start talking about whether the UFC is watering down the product and that is like the concern that here you are at a time when, you know, those of us who remember what it was like 10 years ago when, you, you know, you could only find a few hardcore fight fans here and there. You didn't really have anybody to talk about this stuff with except on the Internet. And now we're at this great period in the sports history. Are you going to kill it by just trying to milk as much money as you can out of it? Uh, and I think a lot of people are scared about that. And I don't think that they're necessarily wrong to be afraid of that. As far as like the the kind of pay-per-view draws we have now, I think if you if you're asking yourself like what sells a pay-per-view, if it's not like some kind of superstar like Brock Lesnar or somebody who, all right, I'll just I'll pay to watch him fight. I hear he's fighting this weekend. I don't even care who. You know, then it's you get to a point where are people watching it because like in order to get them to pay for it, it has to be something where they feel like they can't miss it. Like we're at this point with media where if you just feel like, okay, I want to see this fight like Dan Daniel Cormier and Dan Henderson. I think I know how it's going to go, but I could be wrong. Something crazy could happen or something like some big, awesome finish could happen. I don't think a lot of people are scared though, that if that happens, they'll never be able to see it. Like they'll think, okay, well, if that happens, I'll hear about it on Sunday and I'll find a video of that on Sunday before it gets taken down or I'll find a GIF, uh, of that finish, I'll find something like that. If if it ends up being something that I absolutely need to see, it has to be something that where they feel like I have to see this live. I have to be able to sit down and watch this. And I think that the UFC doesn't have as much of that now as it had at one point. Yeah, and uh, I should add to my like somewhat lengthy monologue that I went on a few minutes ago by saying just because UFC pay-per-views I don't think are down right now doesn't mean that they're not about to be down because I think that the valid point to be made here is the sort of like oversaturization of the product and the kind of watered down uh, cards that we see now they can they can usually throw together a pretty stacked pay-per-view card when they when they want to but at the like the totality of UFC cards does feel a little bit watered down at this point and I think it's going to be interesting to 
to see what happens with uh, UFC 175 in July because that's the next one that the company has coming up that seems like it could uh, do a decent number because uh, you got Chris Weidman on that card fighting Lyoto Machida, who was obviously a former light heavyweight champion, who's a guy that you'd think has kind of a known profile among people who are interested in buying UFC pay-per-views. You also have Ronda Rousey on that card, and you have Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei Silva on that card just for the wacky uh, casual fan who likes to buy fight cards to watch not competitive fights right. from what we've le- been led to believe. If that card does a uh, kind of an underwhelming number, then I think you might have a uh, cause to, to worry a little bit that uh pay-per-view buys in general are on the decline. Uh, and whether or not you should care about that obviously is a, is a different question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could see how, how people care because Hey, we like this stuff, right? Like we want it to stick around. We don't want to see it just gradually lose all interest. Uh, especially those of us who write about it for a living. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast for future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Hell, man, while you're there, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, uh, which comes out once a week, every Friday morning. You can eat your cornflakes and uh, read about the MMA news and notes that happen in between podcasts. Some of the stuff that we don't always get to talk about. Maybe by goddamn mug maybe buy a mug i don't know i'm not gonna force you as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, there's an awful lot of stuff going on with the uh, Bellator lightweight division. That's kind of a funny thing to have to say. Kind of a lot going on with the Bellator lightweight division right now in the wake of this uh, pay-per-view card. I don't know exactly where we want to start with it, uh, except maybe to start with the actual fight that we saw on Saturday night between Michael Chandler and Will Brooks, uh, where uh, Will Brooks came out and surprised everybody, including Michael Chandler, by giving him a much tougher fight than I think anybody anticipated from an emergency injury replacement fighter. And uh, it was certainly the best fight on the card. It was sort of a back-and-forth affair that looked like maybe in the end Michael Chandler was going to come storming back to, to uh, craft a comeback decision victory. But uh, Will Brooks ended up getting the nod on the, on the official decision. Uh, t- tell me about your thoughts about the fight itself. And uh, how, how surprised were you that Will Brooks was able to come out and kind of do that stuff to Michael Chandler? You know, I was surprised that Will Brooks did as well as he did. Uh, then again, I don't really know much about Will Brooks because uh, I don't follow Bellator super closely. And I don't think a whole lot of us hadn't heard too much about him until he had to step up and replace Eddie Alvarez. So I was surprised he did well. I was also surprised Michael Chandler seemed to make as many mistakes as he did. And as many of like the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, uh, he gave up his back a lot, and uh, I've 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 only had the benefit of watching the fight once, uh, obviously because I watched it at your house, so I don't have the video uh, to go back and check out. But you know, he got pretty badly hurt in that uh, third round, the one that Will Brooks uh, probably in a in a perfect world should have taken ten eight on some of those scorecards. I think he did take a ten eight at least one score. Uh, and uh, uh, I was wondering if maybe he never really recovered from that uh, later on in the uh in the fight because it during that third round he was certainly letting Will Brooks take his back uh almost like he didn't care 
you know, because he just assumed that he would be able to battle his way out, which he which he did. But uh, it kind of made me think, like, toward as the fight wore on, maybe it was a, a you know fatigue, and also the fact that he had taken some hard shots in that third round, kind of uh, uh, you know making him get sloppy and also making him like maybe leave openings that he wouldn't ordinarily leave. Well, it did seem like at times, uh, it seemed early, like he maybe wasn't respecting Will Brooks's ground game that much that he thought you know he did kind of dominate that first round with his wrestling and it seemed like at like at one point he gave up his back because it seemed like he just wasn't taking it seriously enough like the threat that will brooks posed on the ground and then later when he kept giving his back up in like a similar fashion over and over again you started to wonder okay maybe yeah he's not totally there or maybe he's more tired than we think he is um because that can happen sometimes where you know you know what the right thing is to do and you just don't quite do that thing either because you're you're tired and you're you're brain gets kind of lazy um or you know if he's been rocked uh and there were definitely times too where when he would get his back taken and he'd have that body triangle put on him and then he wasn't really even doing the right things to try and get out of it it seemed like he was just kind of trying to hold on there uh almost at times like you could look at him and, and see like a sort of shock on his face like he didn't expect this fight uh, to be as tough as it was being right there and a couple times he was able to get out of the that back mount just by you know turning in and just using speed and kind of explosive power and getting out of it. And maybe sometimes when you're able to do that once or twice, you start to think, okay, I don't need to really worry about this guy's uh, ground game. I can just, you know, be faster and just be better and, and get out of it that way. That's a bad habit to get into, though. Yeah, um, you know, and Michael Chandler and Eddie Alvarez have been the two guys uh, for a while now regarded as the Bellator fighters that we all wanted to see fight in the UFC because uh, they were the two guys that we thought looked the most deserving of top 10 rankings and uh, the, the guys who seemed like they would be able to uh, take their skill sets out of Bellator and put them in the UFC and be able to compete with some of the top guys at, at 155 pounds. Uh, now, you know, I, was, I saw it floated in a couple of places after Michael Chandler drops this fight to Will Brooks about whether or not this reflected poorly on Bellator lightweights in general. Like, does does uh, the Bellator lightweight division and specifically uh, Eddie Alvarez and, and Michael Michael Chandler come out of this fight looking a little bit less impressive now than than when they went in. You know, I don't think so. I think that uh, especially if you go back and you look at those two fights between Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler, there seems to be a high level of fighting on display there. I mean, I don't think it's just a matter of, you know, stacking all those things up side by side and then saying like, OK, well, if this guy beat that guy, then that guy wouldn't beat this other guy. You can't do that. I mean, I think haven't we learned that lesson already with MMA that it just doesn't work that way? I mean, you you never know what the things that can go in that kind of make one guy's performance one night worse or better than it might have been another night. I mean, I still think both those guys, you take Will Brooks or Michael Chandler and put them in the UFC's lightweight division. I think they both do pretty well. Uh, I mean, obviously, you'd have to actually do that in order to find out. But. I don't think that, especially at the lightweight division, that Bellator should take a hit there. I mean, I think that uh, if there's one division where it does have comparable talent to the UFC, it's this one. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't see anything to, to get upset about there. Yeah, I pretty much agree with you, especially in the case of a guy like Michael Chandler, who I think uh, you can look at and just see as a guy who has all of the tools and has the skill sets necessary to, to like be an elite lightweight regardless of his competition. And I don't think that we should overlook uh, – like this sort of uh, unique situation that he's in coming into this fight where uh, he, he was supposed to be the pay-per-view main event. And then uh, 
Eddie Alvarez, obviously an opponent that he's very familiar with, uh, pulls out at the last minute and gets a, a replacement fighter, uh, li- like Will Brooks. And I think Alvarez or, uh, Chandler actually, uh, admitted previous to the fight that he didn't change very much, didn't have time to change very much about his game planning, uh, coming in for Will Brooks. And also, you know, a fight, uh, where he had a tremendous amount of friends and family in the audience, which when you talk to guys who've been in that situation before, it, it generally cuts one of two ways. Either they get super fired up and, and they go out there and have the performance of their life, or it feels like a lot of pressure for them to carry around before the fight. And, uh, you know, you, you talk to guys who, who have fights in their hometown. I think even rampage said it after it was over and uh you know after the fact they admit that they didn't they didn't like it they didn't like the feeling of it it's too much pressure and it kind of threw them off their game a little bit so uh i'm not i don't know for a fact that's what happened to michael chandler here but uh i'm not ready to throw out the book or you know throw out our our expectations for him based on this performance uh let's hold off and see what happens to him in the future before we start uh kind of running him into the ground also before you dig the guy's grave point out he this could have easily gone his way i i mean you look at the scorecards afterwards and it's really it came down to that fifth round which two of the three judges gave to brooks and i really st- i still don't see how you do that i mean it seemed like the, the early part of the round pretty close uh pretty even and then michael chandler drops him uh mounts him almost chokes him and and finishes that round you know with the the most dominant action of that that round uh in chandler's favor i don't see how he loses that one i mean this one was a close split decision that went against him. The the loss to Eddie Alvarez was a close split decision that went against him. Uh, I mean, it's just like we used to say about Benson Henderson that hey, if a, you know one judge decides different things, he could he was the UFC champ that could have easily have lost you know three of his last five or something. Michael Chandler seems to be the guy who you know a couple lucky breaks here or there or you know one friendly judge and you know maybe he's still undefeated. So. I don't know. I, this one seems like uh, people are going to get down on him really hard right away and say, oh, the guy's lost two in a row. But, man, those are really close fights. This one, I think he deserved to win. Yeah, I thought, if anything, we were heading for a draw, although maybe that is to give the uh, the, the MMA judge a little bit more benefit of the doubt than he slash she deserves. Uh, and, of course, it didn't play out that way. You know, after the fight, we've gotten into this situation where, uh, well, it's a situation that I can only describe as being entirely Bellator, right? Very Bellator-esque. This is very Bellator. Uh, because we went ahead and called this fight between Will Brooks and Michael Chandler the interim lightweight title fight. And after it was over, we strapped a title belt around Will Brooks's face, or around his waist. Be weird if they strapped it around his face. That'd, that'd be a new Bellator uh, thing. And then he put and his, he's standing there talking about how Eddie Alvarez needed to get healthy. Yep, he put his face in the camera and told Eddie Alvarez that he was coming for him and he hoped that he could get healthy. Uh, come to find out after the fact that Bjorn Rebney, I believe he told MMA Junkie Radio this, uh, Bjorn Rebney says that Eddie Alvarez has... Uh, language in a con- in his contract that that specifies that his next fight would be against Michael Chandler, uh, and in this is what Bjorn Rebney says. So Ed now is in a position where he can choose to fight Chandler, and contractually we have to give him the Chandler fight uh, after he beat Chandler the first time. Uh, you know, and so that definitely puts Bellator in a weird situation, and you have to think that that uh, that con- contract language stems from the uh, bitter and protracted dispute that those two entities had. That, you, uh, you also have to think, though, that Bjorn Rebney's hope in kind of airing this now would be to 
put some sort of pressure on Eddie Alvarez to not like, hey, Eddie, please don't be a dick about this. Like, please go ahead and fight the guy who we gave that interim belt to, because otherwise that whole thing kind of makes no sense. Right. He's got he's got to be hoping that that's that like he's saying, OK, Eddie Alvarez has the right to demand that. However, we kind of hope that he doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Bellator, maybe it cuts one of two ways. Like, if you honestly believe that this is going to be Eddie Alvarez's last fight in Bellator, and then he's going to skate off uh, to the UFC, you either, like, uh, want to wring every ounce of revenue that you can possibly get out of Eddie Alvarez before you turn him loose, or... uh you you want to uh put him in a fight where he doesn't really stand to gain anything uh you know where he's not going to be any bigger of a star for the UFC and i think well i think either way if you're bellator you pray to god that he loses right because it doesn't make you look tremendous if eddie alvarez beats either michael chandler or will brooks especially will brooks cuz then he could have both those belts and hold them up as it drop them in the trash can on ufc tv the next the next week uh so if you're Bellator, like, I don't know, man, this this contract thing makes it seem like you are stuck in a bad place. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I don't know how praying to the MMA gods is going to go for you because they, they haven't smiled on Bellator all that often recently. No, they have not. Uh, I will do, Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, about Michael Chandler, Will Brooks, Eddie Alvarez, anything like that? Uh, or should we move on to uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me and then go on to round number two? Was it me or did Michael Chandler look especially crushed after that decision was announced? Yeah, I mean, shit, man. I think that's understandable. Like, uh, uh, not only did he, in his own words, put on the worst performance of his life, but, uh, uh, he then I think thought he was going to win it because he did come back, uh, in the fifth round and kind of turn things around and like had pretty clearly won the first two. Uh, so I think that, that he thought he was going to pull it off and get the decision and be the interim champion and then likely have maybe another uh, pay-per-view fight against Eddie Alvarez, which was probably going to be quite lucrative for him and his chance to uh, to kind of prove that uh, uh, he was the better fighter than Eddie Alvarez after they split their first two. Yeah, I, I just felt bad for the guy. looking, And I couldn't tell, like you say, I couldn't tell if he was more upset that he felt like he had fought a shitty fight or that he thought that maybe he had pulled it out in the end and the judges didn't give it to him. You know, you know, he's as a former wrestler, I assume Michael Chandler is probably going to be pretty hard on himself when he feels like he has not performed up to his capabilities. You think he might be competitive? Is that I think what there might be a slight competitive streak there. Uh, all right, well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, as you probably heard, uh, Shogun Hua was robbed in Brazil. I did hear that. Terrifying. By four men with rifles, apparently, who robbed him on the freeway. Not only, you know, robbed him, uh, but they also took his clothes. That's cold, man. That is cold. Are you fucking kidding me? What the fuck? How, what kind of, what are you going to do with his clothes? What are you going to do with Shogun who is clothes, Chad? Wear him. Maybe he's your size. Maybe you want, maybe you've been looking to get a white bad boy t-shirt from 2006 for a while now i swear to god if i see some motherfucker pop up on ebay trying to sell uh and a you know a bad boy t-shirt with like a ketchup stain on it i'm gonna know what the score is brazil you're supposed to host the damn world cup and this is the kind of stuff that happens a pro fighter who is from brazil isn't safe in brazil now all these tourists are supposed to come there and watch the world cup are you fucking kidding me brazil are you fucking kidding me? get it together man Ben, I know that you noticed that at Bellator 120, there were some question raised that perhaps the Landers Center in beautiful South Haven Port, Mississippi, 
There you go. Uh, Geography expert Chad Dundas. Was guilty of violating some child labor laws with the security <laughs> guard who was uh, charged with walking the fighters out to the cage. Uh, I mean, I know that the, the security guards at normal UFC events usually are pretty hilarious, but mostly because it looks like they're trying to try out to be extras in that mob drama that Dana White's been producing for Spike TV for like the last decade. Very exciting. Uh, but this kid looked like he was like a 10-year-old orphan that they had found on the street and put in a polo shirt and thrown out there. And as you noted, when Quentin Jackson is coming to the cage and he stops halfway, halfway there and howls like he does, that kid looked fucking terrified. I didn't know he was going to do that. Why did anybody tell me he was going to do that? He looked like a kid who had stolen his dad's car and then turned on the hazard lights and couldn't figure out how to turn them off he was just like what the fuck do i do now uh i mean i feel like one of the prerequisites for being a security guard at an mma event should be that your appearance does not actively encourage people to jump over the barrier because i feel like you could be sitting in the crowd have no uh idea that you want to jump the barrier and then you see that kid and you're like oh wait a second I think I could beat this kid with my spin move. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me, Lander Center? You're sending a child out there to do a man's job? Fucking kidding me. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, we talked about the good stuff from Bellator's pay-per-view, the, the, what we both agree is the best fight on the card in the lightweight division. Now let's talk about the weird shit, particularly in the light heavyweight division, which, of course, included the middleweight champion. Now, you and I were both sitting there when Tito Ortiz comes out to fight Alexander Slomenko, and it was one of those things where it seems to be unfolding in slow motion, and you're thinking, holy shit, Tito Ortiz might be in a good spot here. Holy shit, Tito Ortiz might be about to win. Holy shit, Tito Ortiz just won. That's about where you started to realize maybe maybe this Bellator pay-per-view is worth ordering after all because then Tito Ortiz gets on the mic and acts as if uh, he has just won the Super Bowl and then immediately after that found out that he'd been elected president. Yeah, vintage Ortiz, man, with that post-fight interview with the terrible Hulk Hogan impression and the uh, the many uh, times that he misspoke and uh, called out the UFC uh, for taking him out of the Hall of Fame and we assume uh, for removing him from the now infamous graphic during the last UFC where they didn't include him as a uh, uh, one of the longest or one of the longest light heavyweight. Uh, win streaks or number total number of wins, whatever it was. Also, just acting like beating a a middleweight, it, like it was just this career defining moment. Uh, and maybe well, I mean that is his first win since 2011. Okay, like, been out of the cage for a while, broke his damn neck or whatever. Thought his career was going to be over. You can understand the excitement I think on his part. Might have got uh, a little carried away, despite the fact that he didn't necessarily win the Super Bowl of MMA. <laughs> But, you know, okay, that's so you have that happening. Uh, and then the main event between Rampage Jackson and Mo Lawal, where uh, it's, you know, close fight back and forth. Uh, Rampage wins the decision, and he's the one to demand an immediate rematch, while Mo Lawal yells at his boss and 
says, look at you smiling and shit, calls him a dick rider. Yes. And demands to be cut. What the hell, man? Uh, I don't know. I And I mean, I think right here you have to sort of... Uh I credit Bellator, I guess, for its honesty, because uh, I, I was I didn't watch the prelims, but I was on Twitter and I saw people tweeting about how uh, Mo Lawal had called Bjorn Rebney a dick rider, uh, accused him of riding Rampage Jackson's dick uh, during an interview in the in the prelims, and then I, I assume that they replayed it during the actual pay per view broadcast because I don't know why you would interview the guy again, uh, and then in the post fight. They put a mic in his face one more time and allow him to refer to the CEO of the company as a dick rider, uh, which God, I don't hilarious. think you would ever see on a UFC pay-per-view. I think once we did take one with Mo Wall and the dick rider comment, <laughs> uh, I don't think you would. I don't think that would find its way to air. And I don't think that the, you would probably hear from that guy ever again, which I mean, I don't know, man. Is that commendable for Bellator to do that to like realize, hey, we got a hot storyline here. Let's uh, let's put this on the air. Well, like you said, it was kind of the weirdness of this event that helped make it seem uh, memorable and surprising and like we got our money's worth in a weird way. Uh, so I feel like stuff like that really does contribute to it. I mean, it's maybe not enough to to make you feel like you, you were right in buying this thing to begin with, but all that little stuff when you add it up and it's just, just weird enough that you go away thinking like, yeah, all right. I yeah, got, was, I, had a, I had a good Saturday night. It was a good time, I thought, in, in retrospect. And frankly, uh, uh, not only is it sometimes better to be interesting than it is to be good, as I wrote in my post-fight column, but like, uh, the traffic on the stuff that I wrote about Bellator, a post-fight, uh, has been way better than anticipated. Like, uh, better than any of the stuff that I wrote about UFC, about the UFC since the last John Jones fight. So, you know, maybe we don't know what the buy rate was for this show. I don't think anybody's anticipating that it's going to be tremendously high, but maybe there's reason to believe that because Bellator puts on this wacky show that, uh, receives, I think, more good reviews than bad, uh, of a, of a kind, of a sense, yes. uh, after it was over, maybe, you know, maybe there is hope that, that, Bellator could do another pay-per-view and, and find some life there, even though it certainly doesn't seem like they're going to rival the UFC in, in quality or like push for uh, control of the industry or anything like that. Well, if anything, though, maybe like that's the best case scenario that Bellator could have like realistically hoped for here was that because if it's if it's weird, good rather than just like straight up kind of normal, hey, a bunch of good fights happened uh, good like that, like if you're Bellator you're not, you had to know you weren't going to sell a ton of buys, right? So the best thing that could happen is that the people who didn't buy it end up hearing enough about it. It gets enough people talking that they feel like, oh shit, I missed, I missed something. Uh, and, you know, makes them want to buy the next one or tune into the next Bellator or just like get Bellator into, uh, like onto their radar, you know? And I think that that totally happened because it was weird good instead of just normal good. Weird good is a lot tougher to describe or to explain to the people who didn't see it. Like if we start to tell you about like, oh, then Tito Ortiz got on the mic and he started saying all this crazy stuff. And then Mo Lawal called Bjorn Rebney a dick rider. Um, you just had to see it, man. You just right. had to see it. Like, I mean, I think like that actually helps them in this situation. And it's probably the best they could have helped, hoped for given the lineup. Right. And, you know, I think maybe another part of the silver lining is that the problems with this pay-per-view are easily fixable moving forward because the problems... Uh, weren't necessarily the fights. They weren't necessarily like the overall production values. It was just that it was paced 
horribly. Like, and I think that that's an easy thing to fix if you decide you want to do another one. You just do like five percent less filler between the fights, uh, and I think you come out with with an entirely more enjoyable product. Now let's let's talk a little bit about what Bellator does now because I feel like that's where this discussion is heading. Uh, clearly, that this fight between King Mo and Rampage Jackson was supposed to be the season ten light heavyweight tournament final. Although I think it's. Uh, it's a stretch maybe to even call it a tournament since there's only four dudes <laughs> yes. in it. And, and it was, we obviously knew how they it wanted it to end clearly up. clearly engineered to put together a Rampage Jackson Mola Wall final. We got that. Rampage wins uh, by incredibly questionable decision uh, and had said just before the pay-per-view uh, that he is not tremendously interested in fighting Emmanuel Newton, the uh, Bellator light heavyweight champion, which ostensibly was supposed to be the point of the whole goddamn tournament. Just like that lightweight title, interim lightweight title fight with Michael Chandler and Will Brooks was supposed to be to determine who would get to fight Eddie Alvarez. So I guess you look around now at what Bellator has and where we think things are going. What do you feel like is the proper course of action here, considering that, you know, being in the Rampage Jackson business has never been particularly easy, but now it appears that Bellator is is balls deep in the Rampage Jackson <laughs> business. Oh, oh, oh God. That's gross. That seemed more gross than I wanted it to be. Yeah. I apologize. Okay. I apologize for that. Well, Let me retract that statement. Knee deep in the Rampage <laughs> Jackson business. You know, I think that uh, you really want to try hard to get, try and see if you can't convince Rampage Jackson to fight Emmanuel Newton, don't you? I mean, dude, well, hey, here's what I think. If you're fucking Manny Newton, this is your chance, dude. Like <laughs> Manny you, Newton, huh? You are the you uh, the Bellator light heavyweight champion. It feels like you are an afterthought in your own division. The biggest star in the company is supposed to fight you and says he doesn't want to. He's uh, ducking you. This That's is, what it is this is your chance to to try to be the kind of star you think you can be in this business. I'd be on the MMA fortnight the next day screaming about how Rampage Jackson was never my friend and I can't wait to smash him in our fight. Nothing I've seen from Emmanuel Newton uh, prepares me to think that he might want to go that route. Do no. you remember when after no. his, his win over Attila Vey, uh this most recent win that he had, and they kind of stuck the mic in his face and were like, okay, well, Rampage Jackson and the Wall are going to fight the final of this tournament. What do you think about that one? And that one seemed like a good opportunity. Like if he wanted to to get out to be like, oh man, I already beat Mola Wall's ass twice, and you know, like he could have he could have done a lot of things there to be interesting. And instead, do you remember what his response was? It was, well, both those guys are great fighters, so I have to get a lot better. It was like, man, come on, you had such a Manny Newton, you had such a great opportunity there, and that and I don't think he's going to be the guy you want him to be here. No, he's he's clearly not. And you know what the the. Uh, the bummer of it all is to me if you're if you're in a Emmanuel Newton's corner here like I don't think it's totally out of the question that he beats Rampage if they fight because no. you know Rampage walked away with this victory over Mola Wall but didn't look impressive and uh, uh a lot of people say he probably deserved to lose so you know if you're if you're Emmanuel Newton and you consider what the stakes would be for you to walk away with a victory over Rampage Jackson and still be the Bellator light heavyweight champion Hard not to want to do that, I think, if you have an ounce of like self-promotion or even uh, like a desire to be something in this sport. Or how about a desire to get paid? Who the hell else are you going to fight if not if not one of these guys? Well, that's an interesting question. Let's talk about that before we wrap up this round. So Rampage Jackson gets a win, says he doesn't want to fight Emmanuel Newton. Tito Ortiz gets a win, albeit over uh, a middleweight who'd never trained submissions before. Uh <laughs> 
Do you think we try to do it again, brother? Do you think that Bellator has the stones or even any other option besides trying to put together Rampage Jackson against Tito Ortiz one more time? Okay, well then, I guess, like, you know, if you want to tempt the MMA gods that way, fine. Do you, the question really is, are you, do you have enough hubris to try and stick that bad boy on another pay-per-view? Or do you just throw it up on Spike TV? Yeah, I don't know, man. Considering the, the hit Tito's injury history and what happened the first time, to me, it just seems like a tremendous risk. But then again, you're back in a situation where uh, Bellator doesn't have a whole ton of light heavyweights, man. Like, I, I guess you're, I mean, do you want Tito Ortiz to try to fight like Attila Vey or somebody like that? It seems like uh, as much as you hate to say it, if Tito Ortiz is going to be hanging around in your MMA promotion trying to have fights, I guess you got to try to have him fight Rampage because that's the biggest fight you can make because weirdly enough, there's people out there who want to watch both those guys continue to do their thing. Uh, I mean, or you convince Rampage to fight Manny Newton and uh, Tito can fight Mola Wall or something. Well, I mean, I think that that overall is a better option. It just doesn't seem like that's in the cards, really. You I mean, know, you, could, you could put together Tito Ortiz, Mola Wall, probably, which is a fight that I wouldn't have a problem with at all. Uh, but it just doesn't seem like Rampage and Newton is going to happen. It really tells you something about Tito Ortiz and what uh, our notions of him are. That did you notice, like in the hype before this fight, like the the stuff that they were showing and the the stuff that they kept saying on the broadcast, really centered a lot um, on how Tito Ortiz was not at all injured for this fight. <laughs> Made it through a full two month training camp, didn't even get injured. That tells you something, man. That means you have a bit of a reputation, and it's not a good one. Well, yeah, that's. I mean. What else are you going to say about him? That he's one in fifty-seven coming into this fight? Like that's fair point. You just say he's the Huntington Beach bad boy. He's in the best shape of his life, and he's ready to rock and roll. And if he's not, a giant of a man, according to the Bellator, failing broadcast. the best, if it's not quite the best shape of his life, at least not currently hurt that we know of. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that if he would have lost, we would have we would have heard a laundry list of oh yeah stuff actually had his stomach removed three weeks ago <laughs> stage four cancer came back right before the <laughs> right before the fight uh do you feel like that this loss hurt alexander shlomenko because he was a guy who that we had talked about nobody really gave him the credit that maybe he we thought he deserved as being a uh you know 50 and 7 or whatever he was and a guy who who uh inflicted violence on his opponents and and threw out some crazy technique techniques and had been successful in bellator you know then you get choked on Unconscious by Tito Ortiz, does that uh, undermine everything you've done up to this point, or do we give him a pass because he moved up in weight to fight, uh, you know, a giant? As well, the Bellator kept reminding us, it didn't help. It didn't help him too much to go out. I think the what hurts him more than just the fact that he lost was uh, what we saw of him and that and that brief. It's one thing like if the guy, if a bigger guy goes out there and just holds you down for three rounds or something, and you know he he wins a decision that way, and you could say, oh well, hey, I guess I found out why we have weight classes. Um, but he just kind of made a dumb mistake and, and let himself get caught in that arm triangle choke. I mean, I think that that more than anything, people are going to look at that and say, uh, and I think it really hurts Bellator kind of too, to say, oh, really, that's your, your middleweight champion. The guy who doesn't uh, know how to defend the, the arm triangle choke and doesn't even really start thinking about it until it's already too late. Huh? Okay. Uh, I think that that if, if I'm Bellator, I get a little upset about that. I think if it's one thing to to lose, it's another thing to lose and look bad doing it. Yeah, it it seems like weird 
flawed matchmaking, really. Because I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're Bellator, you think Shlomenko's going to beat Ortiz. But even then, like, what do you really get? Like, a, 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 I don't know how how effective it is to trumpet that to the to the stars about the, you know, oh, your middleweight champion is such a badass. He beat Tito Ortiz, who probably, you know, was missing missing three limbs or whatever. He's had a torn rotator cuff. and a, or Wasn't he a tool of God peg or leg. something? Came out there with a peg leg. Oh yeah, where is that Tito Ortiz quote? We got to read that before we we wrap this up. In in true and fine Tito Ortiz tradition, he comes to the uh, post fight press conference and breaks out this gem. <laughs> uh, okay, here's the quote. I just think God put me on this earth as a tool. You know, I'm not really a religious person, but I believe that being a tool is showing people that you can achieve stuff once you set your mind to things that it can that it can it be accomplished. I mean, Jesus Christ. God put him on this earth as a tool, but he's not, you know, particularly religious. <laughs> so God chose a tool that's not even really into God, to be honest. Come on, dog. I just think you got to think for five seconds before you just start calling yourself a tool over and over again. That's just, <laughs> that's typical. All right, well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. All right, Ben. Well, we talked earlier about Henan Barrow defending his title against TJ Dillashaw in the main event of UFC 173 this Saturday night. But the people's main event uh, may well be the co-main pitting Daniel Ryan Cormier against Daniel Jeffrey Henderson. Uh, in a fight that we think is going to turn out to be a light heavyweight title eliminator. Uh, D. D. Jeffrey Henderson? D. Jeffrey Henderson. Now, that would be awesome. Attorney at law. If if you know if Dan Henderson uh, was like a writer of literary fiction, that's what he would go as. D. Jeffrey Henderson. It'd be a solid moniker. Uh, just, just taking a look at the odds here, Daniel Cormier... Uh, between an eight to one and nine to one favorite and Dan Henderson going off as about a six to one underdog. Uh, does that seem about right to you or considering the fact that Dan Henderson always has that ace in his back pocket? Like is, do you think things should be a little bit more competitive here? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I know I talked to Dan Henderson last week and he actually brought up the betting odds that he, it seemed like he was acknowledging that he could understand why he was the underdog, but he thought that the, the odds were a little longer than he deserved. Uh, you know, he has good things to say about Daniel Cormier and you have to, you have to acknowledge that Daniel Cormier is obviously a pretty good fighter, a pretty good athlete. Uh, and it, this is one of those fights where if you just look at it skill for skill on paper, it looks like Daniel Cormier beats Dan Henderson. But who knows, man? That guy can just – he can always put that right hand upside your head uh, and can change your whole night around. At the same time, though, how do you really plan on that being your thing? Like I'm going to go out there, the guy's going to be better than me, and then at some point I'm just going to knock him out. Yeah, it is interesting to wonder what what kind of preparation goes into these fights for Dan Henderson. Uh we we saw in his last fight against uh, Shogun Hua uh, back in March that he is the kind of guy who can be losing, be losing, be losing, and then all of a sudden, bang, win. So in that regard, uh, you're right. I think he does 
uh, pose some danger uh, for Daniel Cormier here. But at the same time, I think uh, if you're trying to put this thing together in your mind or do any kind of prognostication at all, at all you got to think that uh, that Daniel Cormier is going to be able to come away victorious here, just considering uh, the, the fact that, that he seems to be, at this point in their careers, the, the far better rounded fighter and, and a guy who uh, is regarded as being a little bit more in the mix uh, here recently than Dan Henderson. Now you got to admire, I feel like though, throughout his entire career, uh, Dan Henderson's, um, I hesitate to call it honesty, but, but like his, his kind of, uh, this, this sort of, uh, uh, panache that he has where like a straight shooter, he comes off as a straight shooter, like in that UFC embedded video that you were talking about where they ask him about this fight and he was talking about how it's a quick turnaround for him. Got only a couple of months since the, the Shogun fight. And he, in the, like the very first thing he says almost in the whole video is like, this is this fight against Daniel Cormier is, is a, is an opportunity I jumped at. And then he stops himself and he goes, well, not at first. And like kind of like concedes that he had to think about this for a while and that like maybe he didn't want to do it in first at first until the UFC confirmed that it was going to be a, a you know a number one contender fight and that uh there's probably going to be a, a, some financial reward in in it for uh for Dan Anderson. Yeah, he he has always had that. He also just seems like he's always at such an even keel. Like, he never gets too high or too low. It's tough to get too, like, passionate a reaction out of Dan Henderson on anything. I remember once when uh, when I was working for the IFL and I, he was going to coach a team, uh, and I don't think it ended up ever getting too far past the planning stages. I think maybe they even announced it or something. And they wanted me. They were like, hey, go talk to Dan and uh, do, you know, something on on him and uh, him as a coach or something, you know. And I was kind of interviewing him, and I was asking him for, like, okay, what are some, like, you know, can you reel off some quick career highlight kind of stuff for me that we can throw together in this press release or whatever? And he said something like, you know, he's going through some of his wrestling uh, stats and was like, oh, it was like a three or four time, you know, champion of this. And I was like, what do you, th- three or four time? Which one, which one was it? I mean, if it was some kind of championship you won, you'd think you'd remember. And he just kind of like, you know, gave me that, that Dan Henderson smile and like shrugged his shoulders like, oh, like I can't be expected to keep track of all my own championships. Come on. <laughs> Uh, well, the re- and the, obviously the reason a few minutes ago that I hesitated to say honesty about Dan Henderson, as everyone knows, like this is going to be his first fight without testosterone replacement therapy. He was, uh, the last guy who was able to use it in the UFC during that last fight with, with Shogun Hua. Uh, he was a guy that always kind of, uh, got the benefit of the doubt, I think, more than a lot of other TRT users did, uh, from the media. Uh, maybe because he always seemed like he was being honest about it. Maybe because we believed he actually needed it. Uh, or maybe because we just liked the guy. I, I never really, uh, was able to, to figure that out. But, uh, now in the post TRT era, it seems like both, uh, Henderson and Chael Sonnen haven't really had a problem, uh, you know, be getting licensed to continue fighting where, where a guy like Vitor Belfort's future is a little bit more up in the air. Uh, what's, what's our take on this? Do we feel like he, uh, he's going to show any sort of, uh, 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 you know, uh, is this going to affect him at all? Is, is fighting think, without this stuff going to be hard or? I think it would be tough for us to really say for certain, uh, like it's, if he, even if he goes out there and he, and he gets beat up by Daniel Cormier, how are you able to say that it's because he's off TRT? Because it's for one thing, he had the three fight losing streak. Then he goes out there against Shogun and start, did not look great in that one. You know, started off looking like, Maybe his age was finally starting to show, like he was a little bit too slow and, and was getting caught. 
and it looked bad for him and he came back and won that. So it's not as if like, like if he showed up and he looked like that again and got beat up by Daniel Cormier, it'd be tough to be like, see, that's him off TRT. That's, that's the, the effect that it has on him to get off of it because honestly, that recently hasn't looked super great on it. Yeah, I think if he showed up looking in terrible physical condition, we, we would use the eye but we test. we saw that picture yeah. of him getting the trampoline off his roof. By the way, I asked him about that. Uh, he, he said that uh, trampoline poked a, poked a damn hole in his roof. Really? All that's, the way through? That's what he said. That seems quite dangerous to have a trampoline with, with sharp legs. or. Well, then that's why you got to pop the top off and get <laughs> up there get with that the shirt off, off the roof and, ASAP yeah. before the wife gets home. Uh, well, let's talk about Daniel Cormier here. Obviously, a guy that for a long time we were waiting to see fight in the light, <clears throat> light heavyweight division. Uh, UFC 170, he beats the tar out of Patrick Cummings in a way that uh, didn't surprise very many of us. Now he gets this fight against Dan Henderson, and uh, if he wins it, I think he'll be acknowledged as as the number one contender and the guy who's probably going to fight the winner of John Jones's upcoming fight with with Alexander Gustafson. Uh, obviously, we we saw what he was able to do at heavyweight, but is there any chance? at all that we're jumping the gun on Daniel Cormier in that, uh, you know, he, he beat Patrick Cummins, who was a dude that we had never heard of before, and now he's going to fight a guy in Daniel, Dan Henderson, who had been, you know, kind of one-dimensional the past few years, and as you mentioned, hadn't looked good in his, his most recent fights. Uh, is this enough to consider Daniel Cormier number one contender for for John Jones's throne? If he goes out there and he looks good against Dan Henderson, I think so. I mean, I think when when we were all kind of unsure about how his move to light heavyweight would go, the big question was, can he make the weight without murdering himself and without, you know, leaving his best stuff uh, in the sauna, uh, more or less? And clearly, I mean, again, Patrick Cummins wasn't a huge test for him, but he made the weight look like pretty easily, um, showed up, still looked like Daniel Cormier on fight night. It seems like that... That weight change has prompted more like a lifestyle change for him than just like him dropping a whole lot of weight in time for the weigh-ins. Like he just seemed like you see him walking around and he just seems like slimmer. Uh, and like I think that we already knew he was a good fighter when we saw him at heavyweight and we just wondered if he could actually get down there. Now we know he can if he goes out there and he does what we all expect him to do against Dan Henderson. I don't. Why not? Like who else would you have him fight after that? No, I agree with you. Uh, uh, he does, I feel like, looks like a million bucks, frankly, walking around as a guy who's going to fight it at 205. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this fight, uh, aside from the fact that we're going to see Daniel Cormier have to avoid Dan Henderson's right hand the entire time, will be to see if uh, Hendo is able to push him a little bit more than Patrick Cummins was and maybe get him into a slightly longer fight. Uh, and then, you know, maybe we'll get some uh, definitive proof as to how Daniel... Cormier handles the the cut to 205. Although at this point we have no reason to believe that that it affects him uh, too badly. Uh, and, and frankly, Dan Henderson, a guy who in in the latter stages of his career, uh, not known for uh, uh, doing a ton of cardio uh, in the preparation phase himself. Although a guy who uh, can get through a five rounder when he has to, you know, and a guy who's just tough as shit. I mean, let's. Let's acknowledge that that fight against Shogun looked like he, you know, he should have been finished a couple times there. A guy who has that kind of experience and that kind of calm, where uh, even if things are going badly for him, he can he can hang on, collect himself, and still come back. And you know, you got to know that he that dude is always a threat as long as he can throw that right hand at you. I mean, I think that uh, the big challenge for uh, Dan Henderson is going to be typically when he's faced people who are a real threat to take him down, he doesn't. Uh, 
unleash that right hand with the same reckless fury that he's known to against guys like Shogun, who, where he's not that worried about being put on the mat against him. Against Cormier, you, you might be tempted to hold back a little bit because you don't want to get put on your back. And, and it's going to be interesting to see if he can balance those, those two concerns. All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff and uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, you mentioned it in the listener mail. Uh, portion of today's show that that uh, Bellator is sending Frank Shamrock out there to do the backstage interviews uh, previous to to guys getting in the cage to fight. And, you know, before this, I've always kind of thought that we should try to get Frank Shamrock nominated for MMA Journalist of the Year. But now, <laughs> in the wake of this Bellator pay-per-view, I'm thinking, fuck that. Let's see if we can get this guy nominated for a Peabody. I mean, if you insist on giving me the world's most awkward backstage interviews before fights, at least, at least do me the service of having them conducted by Frank Shamrock. At least... Give me an interview that's going to be conducted by a guy who's going to sit there and listen to King Mo accuse the CEO of the company of riding Rampage Jackson's dick and then look at the camera like he's Walter fucking Cronkite <laughs> and he's just delivered the news to the nation that President John F. Kennedy is dead and say, with, with no irony at all, back to you guys. <laughs> I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, uh, this week I'm just saying, uh, also as we mentioned earlier in the show and that, uh, UFC embedded clip, uh, where we have, you know, we see a clip of Dana White talking to a different camera, uh, reading off stats about, uh, he's so uh, famous. There's two cameras <laughs> filming him. Well, at the end of that embedded clip, uh, Dana White, uh, and, you know, other people in the UFC offices are talking about, uh, Shogun Hua being robbed in Brazil. It starts out, you know, kind of them just saying what we've all said. Isn't that crazy? He got robbed by four dudes with rifles in Brazil. By the way, during this entire thing, Dana White is standing there throwing a racquetball against a wall uh, in somebody else's office, it looks like. So just, pretty much just like you imagine his day to be. Yes, and you thought your coworkers were annoying for listening to, like, sports talk radio in their cubicle. Uh, but there he is, you know, they're, they're talking about that. Isn't that crazy? They spend about, you know, four or five seconds talking about, hey, Shogun got robbed by guys with rifles. Uh, which then, you know, makes Dana White reflect on the time when he had all his boxer size tapes stolen out of his car, uh, spends probably 15 seconds or so talking about that, uh, in like, woe is Shogun? No, no, no. Woe is Dana White, who had those boxer size tapes taken out of his car. I'm just saying, Dana White, that is not even in the same zip code of theft or robbery as having four dudes with rifles in Brazil roll up on you and take all your goddamn clothes. You lost your boxer size tape? Shogun lost his clothes, man. Had to walk down the freeway without his clothes on. Just saying, dog. Those two things aren't even the same. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 173. And uh, I believe get ready for that May 31st date when the UFC is going to do two shows on the same day. Oh, boy. I know you're excited about that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. Uh, but as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. You don't think you could reason with some guys who, just, who want you to take off your clothes and be like, okay, look, I'll give you the shirt. Like, how about if I keep the, the pants? It depends. You're going to have to take that, I think, on a case-by-case -case basis. Like, when the four dudes with rifles descend on you and, and say that they want your clothes, you need to make a, uh, a split-second judgment there about uh, how serious these motherfuckers are. <laughs> if they seem serious, I don't know, man, your show going, you're in pretty good shape. You probably look good without your clothes.